Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, tonight we are going to look at Psalm 45 and hopefully Psalm 47. But you can turn to the book of Hebrews. So far as we've been looking through the Psalms, we have seen certain themes repeated. One of the most repeated themes is a cry for help that God would save, that God would redeem, that God would forgive. And usually the attitude of the psalmist is one of looking for mercy, begging for help, under distress, looking for some kind of deliverance. But the two psalms we're going to look at tonight, in contrast to all of that, are very upbeat, very happy psalms. And it's kind of about time. (laughs) Psalm 45 is considered a wedding psalm, but it is not without its controversies. The psalm itself is written as if it is a blessing to the king as the king is getting married. The problem, of course, is identifying who that king would be. Because the language of the psalm is practically hyperbolic, in describing that king. And there's no human king that could possibly fit the description that we find in the psalm. And in fact, the sixth verse of the psalm launches into praise toward God and even refers to the husband as God. So what we're looking at in Psalm 45 is either a poem about the wedding of the king with very messianic overtones, or if you read the historic Israel sources, if you read the Hebrew sources, most of the ancient Hebrew commentaries say that it is actually an allegorical psalm looking forward to the Messiah to come. And the writer of Hebrews seems to follow that line of thinking because the writer of Hebrews quotes directly from Psalm 45 in order to establish the superiority of Christ over all other created beings. And so we're going to start at Hebrews 1 and we're going to see how the writer of Hebrews employs Psalm 45 and then we're going to look at Psalm 45 and take that same perspective of the ancient Hebrew rabbis, the ancient Hebrew commentaries, because I do believe that it is a messianic psalm that is simply written in a style of a blessing for a wedding for a king, because it's clearly not historic. There are no kings, especially not Solomon, 
that can satisfy the description of the king that we find in that psalm. Psalm 47 then follows most naturally after that because it is an exaltation of God and it refers to him as the king. So if we look at them both back to back, I think we're going to see, as the writer of Hebrews did, that there is not just a messianic overtone, but a foreshadowing of the Messiah in Psalm 45. But then Psalm 45 turns its attention momentarily to the bride. So then we have to determine who that bride might be. We know from New Testament parallels that the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, but the language in Psalm 45 doesn't necessitate that, and so some commentators have said that the bride in Psalm 45 is the Holy Spirit. Instead, we're just going to read through it. It's a short psalm, and you can decide for yourselves who you think the bride and the groom are. The writer of Hebrews is determined that the king is Christ himself. Hebrews 1, starting at verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the Son, is the radiance of his, the God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the argument here from the Hebrew writer to the Hebrew audience is that Christ is higher than the angels because there was a whole sect of Judaism that worshipped angels, that looked into the angelology of the scripture. The argument from the writer of Hebrews is that Christ is better. And starting in verse 5, he starts proving it from their own scripture. And several of his references come from various psalms. One of his references comes from 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel. Verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did he, that's a reference to God, for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. The obvious answer is no angel got that kind of relationship, description with God. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes the angels winds and his ministers and a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, and verse 8 is a direct quote now from Psalm 45. To the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. 
Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, and they shall perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of all those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so right in the middle of that argument of the superiority of Christ, the writer of Hebrews reaches back into Psalm 45 in order to say, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever referring to the Son as God, referring to him as Elohim in the Old Testament. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. Okay, with that as an introduction, we can now turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45, the superscript says that it is for the choir director. According to the Shoshanim, nobody's certain what that word means, but it appears to mean lilies, and then people argue about whether that is a reference to a particular song, a particular melody, or it could be referring to an instrument like a lily-shaped instrument, and then people argue about whether that is horns and trumpets or whether that is stringed instruments. No one knows for sure. But it is some kind of musical designation. A maskil, we've seen that word maskil. We're going to see it a couple times tonight. It means a skillful, well-thought-out psalm. A maskil of the sons of Korah, a song of love. And then if you're looking at the NASB, you will see that they have added a heading to describe the psalm itself. And the heading in the NASB is a song celebrating the king's marriage. And that is an accurate description of the psalm, except that that seems to be the literary form of the psalm. The psalm itself is about the son of God. It's about the Messiah to come. My heart, writes the psalmist, overflows with a good theme. In other words, it's just running out of me. I'm composing these good things. I address or I speak out my works, my verses, and I speak them to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Okay, right away, who can you say that about? It's a little tough to pull that out for Steve or Jeff. Put all the people of the planet together, you're better. (laughs) You're superior. Except that's what the writer of Hebrews does argue. 
is that Christ is better than all created beings. Well, the psalmist seems to agree, thou art fairer than the sons of men. And grace is poured upon thy lips. That word upon can also be rendered as it flows from your lips. It flows out of your lips. So grace is internalized in this king. And then when he speaks, grace pours out of his lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. Gird your sword on to your thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty. Great kings were conquering kings. Warrior kings. We know that David was a great warrior king. And part of what made a really effective king was his ability to fight and defend his people. So as the psalmist is characterizing this king, he is also showing that he's a warrior king, and yet in a moment, he's going to say that he is full of truth and meekness and righteousness. So he's also a peaceful king. He's a warrior, peaceful king. There are very few people who can be described this way. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously. So he's a conquering king for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. So the kingdom he is battling for, when he's going out and doing war, When he is going out and defending his people, he is defending the cause of the truth. And he is defending meekness. He's defending humility. He is defending people who are under control. And then also he is defending righteousness. So he's a king of truth. And he's a king of grace. And he's a king of righteousness. Pretty hard to say that that's Solomon. Solomon is the only person who some commentators try to shoehorn into this text. But the language is so clearly beyond any human being. And then this really interesting passage, which I would think would kind of close the door on it being any human being, let your own right hand teach you awesome things, things that cause people to be in awe, to be awestruck, to be overwhelmed. So go ahead, do it, Steve. You know, let your right hand do awesome things that people are going to be astounded by. Teach yourself. Let you also be witness to your own awesome power and the things that only you can accomplish. Your arrows are sharp. And the people fall under you. And your arrows are in the hearts of the king's enemies. You're going to conquer all your enemies. You're going to destroy all your enemies. Verse 6 will sound very familiar. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Whoever this king is that the psalmist is writing about, whoever the subject of this psalm is, is now referred to by the psalmist as Elohim, as God. No human being can qualify. 
Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's why we started in the book of Hebrews, so that you could see that the New Testament rendering and understanding of this verse is that it applies to Christ, that it is a messianic promise, and the writer of the book of Hebrews understands it that way. I don't know how we can understand it any other way. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy, the oil of gladness above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, and out of ivory palaces stringed instruments have made you glad. And then the psalmist's attention turns to the bride. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At thy right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within Her clothing is interwoven with gold, and she will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to thee, and they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing, and they will enter the king's palace, and in the place of your fathers will be your sons, and you shall make them princes in all the earth. Okay, so who is that describing? Is that describing the church? Is that describing the Holy Spirit? Or is that continuing the theme of the wedding to come and just describing a bride suitable for this king? The answer is, I don't know. The answer is also, apparently nobody else knows. Because you can go online and read commentary after commentary after commentary. And people will speculate about it. It's very obvious from the writer of Hebrews that the king of this psalm is Christ and that the point of this psalm is that Christ is superior to every other created being. Everyone who Christ himself marries, everyone who Christ himself takes to be wed to, to be husband to, All of them are going to bow. They are going to bow the knee. They are going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. We know that from other texts. Therefore, without being too dogmatic, we can say that this is, at very least, a description of Christ and his people. But then, starting at verse 16... It seems to go back to talking to the husband. We're not told that in a narrative fashion, but the language here is, in place of your fathers will be your sons, so you're going to have plentiful offspring. 
But then they're going to be princes in all the earth. In other words, they're going to be noblemen. You're going to have so many offspring. You're going to have so many children, such progeny, so much seed, that they are even going to become the noble ones, the leaders, the princes throughout all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Well, certainly if the king is Christ, we'd have to say, that's true. That happened. The name of Christ Jesus has been remembered through all the generations. And therefore, the people will give you thanks forever and ever. It's a very messianic thing to say. So that's Psalm 45, based on how the writer of Hebrews handles it, based on the ancient Hebrew sources. They all see it as a messianic psalm. And so I see it as a messianic psalm, even if I can't elucidate all the little details about who the bride is. It's very clear that the king who is being exalted here cannot be a human person, especially when he is called Elohim and he is told that his throne exists forever and ever and that his scepter is a scepter of righteousness. You have to conclude that's Christ. So then turn to Psalm 47. Once you that the details don't matter that much. Yeah, to some degree you're right. And I think we have to conclude that based on what the New Testament writers have done with it. We're kind of cornered. But now Psalm 47 is this psalm of praise and it is a praise to the king of all the earth. And so this language of king And this language of Messiah and this language of God as king is repeated by the psalmist. So we get some indication in Psalm 47, the Psalm 45, that king has to be deity. It cannot be a human being. This psalm also is for the choir director. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands. Everybody, all you people, clap your hands. By the way, the reason that we still applaud when we appreciate something, that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Part of worshiping God was shouting and clapping and raising a noise to God. And so clap your hands, everybody, all peoples, shout to God with the voice of joy. Anybody been shouting to God lately? I mean, we we pray to God. We sometimes whisper to God. When we're alone, we may talk to God. But shouting to God is part of the worship of God. When you're elated, when you're overtaken with just rapturous joy, you shout. And we ought to appreciate God on that level. We ought to appreciate his existence and his deliverance and his salvation to such a point that every once in a while we ought to just be overwhelmed and just be enabled to keep ourselves from shouting. I grew up in a charismatic church, and that was one of the songs we had. Uh, I mean, all the crazy stuff that usually happens, sure. but that was one of the clap your hands, all ye people. And it goes, 
And shout, shout to the Lord. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord lifted up, the Lord most high, is to be, the NASB here renders the word feared. The Lord is to be feared. What it means is he is to be revered. You're to recognize him in the magnificence of who he is and the extent of his power. Jesus himself said, you should fear and love God. He said, don't fear what man can do. Fear God, who can put body and soul in hell. That engenders a recognition that raises up a fear and a reverence. So God should be enjoyed. You should clap your hands. You should shout but you should also reverence him and get on your face before him and properly fear him because a great king is God over all the earth. He subdues peoples. Now he's going to talk first person. He is obviously a Hebrew, an Israelite here, and he is looking back at the history of Israel and recognizing that nations have been subdued by the Israelites, and he's giving God credit for that. And he said, he subdues people under us. And he subdues nations under our feet. And he chooses our inheritance for us. In other words, the land of Israel that they inherited, that was promised to Abraham, that was handed down, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, handed down to the 12 tribes as a forever covenant. That is their inheritance. And it is a forever inheritance And they recognize that God is the one who chose that. They didn't choose it. He chooses our inheritance for us. That is why they were able to subdue nations and enemies and animals so that they could have the inheritance that God gave them. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Think of that. Selah. God has risen up. God has lifted himself up. God has ascended because he is the most high. You saw it in verse 2. He is Yahweh, the most high. And he became the most high with a shout. That's really interesting. The denizens of eternity, when God lifts him up, they praise and worship him and they shout toward him. So that is an inspiration for us that we ought to be shouting for joy as well toward him. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord, Yahweh, has ascended with the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets do several things in the Old Testament. One of the big things they do is get your attention, which is why Jesus said that the Pharisees, when they did their giving in the temple, they would blow a trumpet So that people would see it. So people would recognize it. It would get attention. Trumpets are also used to assemble people. Trumpets are used to call people into war. To tell them when it's battle time. To this very day, the army still uses trumpets like reveille or taps at the end of the day. Trumpets are a a way of communicating and a way of gathering and a way of speaking to large masses of people. And when God raises himself up and expects worship and praise, he calls to his people with the sound of a loud trumpet, assembling them 
for his own worship. And what do they do? Verse 6, they sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. In that verse, the phrase sing praises shows up four times. That's why I like the fact that GCA is a singing church. Because we are told, we are instructed to sing to God. To make a joyful noise. To raise our voices to God. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. That exact phrase is repeated twice. And the only change is between Elohim and our king. So again, God is referenced. God is designated as the king. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Remember a few minutes ago, we read the previous psalm, Psalm 45, and it said that it was a maskil. And I said that that was a skillful, well-thought-out psalm. Well, the Hebrew word here, sing praises with a skillful psalm, is maskil. It's the exact same word. So sing praises not arbitrarily. I mean, for heaven's sake, when you go to work or even when you get dressed, well, at least some of you, you put some thought into it. I mean, the way that you conduct yourself over the course of the day, you put some thought into it. Most of the things you do, you put some thought into it. The point is, when it comes to worshiping God, when it comes to singing to God, when it comes to reverencing and worshiping God, this is not an arbitrary thing. This is not a thing that you just fall into or treat haphazardly. This is a thing that you do with thought, with consideration, with skill. You do it to the best of your ability. You don't just praise God 10 minutes on Sunday and think that you're good. You're supposed to give thought to it. You're supposed to engage in it thoughtfully. Because God is the king of all the earth, you're supposed to think about that. You're supposed to consider that and then use that as the inspiration for how you praise him and why you fear him and why you shout and clap your hands to him and you do all of that thoughtfully. Sing praises with a skillful psalm because God reigns over everybody, over all the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes, the nobles, the high and mighty of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. In other words, at one point, says the psalmist, the nations are going to so recognize God are going to so flow to God, if this sounds familiar, we've been talking about it a lot on Sunday mornings. At some point, the nobility of the nations of the world are all going to recognize the God of Israel and the king who sits on his throne in Jerusalem. And they are going to amass themselves in worship toward him and the nobles of the goyim of the peoples of the nations are going to assemble themselves the same way that the people of the God of Abraham do. So who are the people of the God of Abraham? 
That'd be Israel. And yet, the prophecy here is, the expectation here is, but the people, the noblemen, the princes of all nations are one day also going to assemble because he is the God, not only of Israel, but the God and the king of the whole world. And he's going to demonstrate it. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth, the weaponry of the earth, the defensive weaponry of the earth, all belongs to God. And he, I think we would all agree, is highly exalted. Now, if his position and character at this very moment in heaven is that he is highly exalted, and if when he lifts himself up, there is great shouting, celebration, and worship in heaven, then that gives us a pretty good sense of how we ought to be, how we ought to react to him, how we ought to recognize him. We should recognize him as the Lord God, but also as the king, as the sovereign who is in charge of everything. And we ought to exult in him, whether that's shouting, whether that's clapping our hands, whether that's sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. However we do it, we're supposed to do it thoughtfully. We're supposed to do it with great consideration and understanding, not to do it just arbitrarily. And we should do all of that because he deserves it. He reigns over all the nations. He sits on his holy throne. He is highly exalted. That's the God we worship. That's the God with whom you have to deal That's the God who expects you to get down on your face in front of him, but he's also the God that expects you to joy in his presence and to worship him in reverence, but also in exaltation and happiness and clapping and singing. You inspired me. We're singing that Sunday. That's all there is. Well, then we're going to do it. There's going to be singing and clapping on Sunday. You heard it directly from the music director, so that's happening. So those are very positive psalms, and they are psalms that I hope encouraged you and taught you a little bit more about the God with whom we all have to do. Praise his wonderful name. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.